Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Tax Chick Podcast. Today, I have Michelle Scheller from MNP on, and Michelle is a licensed insolvency trustee. You're probably thinking, what does this have to do with tax? Well, I have worked with Michelle and her team over the years um, with my clients who are dealing with what I like to call tax-driven bankruptcies. So situations where um, a client owes so much tax that they're simply unable to make arrangements to pay it, uh, where there might be garnishes on bank accounts, some fairly serious collections action taken, and just really not sure what the next step is. And Michelle and her team have been instrumental in in handling that for my clients. And I thought it might be great to have Michelle on because I feel like there are a lot of misconceptions about what bankruptcy is and what happens when you go bankrupt, what happens after bankruptcy is over, and a lot of misconceptions about the interaction between taxes and bankruptcy. So Michelle and I are going back to basics. We are talking about what does it mean to go bankrupt, what is a licensed insolvency trustee, and what do they do, what is a proposal in bankruptcy or a consumer proposal versus a bankruptcy. We talk about tax-driven bankruptcies and some of the different rules that apply when you fall into that category. And then we also chat about Like, what are the first steps? So if you feel like you're listening to this podcast and, oh my goodness, maybe this applies to me or this applies to one of my clients, what do you do? So we talk about what information to gather, um, how to make that first phone call, and some of the practical steps and some of the costs that, that arise. And keep in mind that that initial consultation with the insolvency trustee is complimentary. So you really lose nothing gathering your information and going to them and just seeing what your options are. One of the things that we've indicated in this podcast today is is by making that phone call. That does not mean you've gone bankrupt. You've just made a phone call to ask for help and that's all you've done. And that's a really important first step. And the earlier that you can make that call, the more options that are available. I feel like a broken record. I'm always saying that the earlier you deal with things, the more options that we have. So, you know, reach out, um, get some help from a professional because there are a lot of different things that we can do to help sort out your issues. So I hope that you enjoy this episode. I have had a few clients who've had to go through this process with Michelle and her team. And uh, she's really fantastic and her team is really fantastic in how that they deal with these situations and the different options and creative solutions that they can provide to deal with some debt. So I have all the information about Michelle in the show notes. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Um, as always, please reach out if you have ideas for future episodes. If you enjoy this podcast and you have a few moments, would love if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or give us a rating. Let me know what you think of the episodes, what you think of the podcast. I always appreciate feedback. Without further ado, on to the episode. Welcome, Michelle, to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you on today. 
Thanks for having me, Amanda. I'm looking forward to discussing this topic with you. So, I mean, you and I have worked together or our teams have worked together in the past, um, particularly in in the area of, I call them tax-driven bankruptcies. I'm sure that's not the actual correct terminology, but um, when I have tax clients who are in a bit of a pickle, I've certainly reached out to your team. And I'm really excited to have you on today because I think there's a lot of misconceptions about bankruptcy and about how bankruptcy interacts with tax debt. And I'm hoping we can maybe clear some of that up today. Absolutely. Should we should we start with the basics? I mean, maybe we should start with some foundational discussions. Um, are you able to describe what it means to go bankrupt? Sure. So basically what happens if we start first with what I am as a licensed insolvency trustee, and we are federally regulated and licensed and the only professional that is able or to assist people to file proposals in bankruptcy, both consumer and corporate. So what that looks like then, in order for an individual to proceed with the bankruptcy, they, they must be insolvent. So what insolvent means under our legislation, the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act, is that they owe more than $1,000, they're unable to meet their payments as they become due, and their total liabilities are greater than the value of their total assets. So those are the things basically to meet in order to get there. And then what it is, it's a formal proceeding. So it's available to a debtor trying to obtain relief from their financial crisis. And upon filing a bankruptcy, there's an immediate stay of proceedings in place, meaning that creditors have to cease all collection activity. And then during that bankruptcy process, the individual has certain duties to complete as set out by the Bankruptcy Insolvency Act. For example, they have to report income and expenses monthly. They have to attend a couple debt counseling sessions and make the required payments. Okay. And so when you're talking about this being a formal application process, so of course, this actually does involve the court system. There is something that actually gets filed um, on like a public registry to get things started. That is uh, piece correct there. It, not all bankruptcies go through the court process. So when it's filed, it is filed with the Office of the Superintendent of Bankruptcy, our governing body. That's where it gets filed. If you are filing a basic summary bankruptcy, an individual, it's a nine or 21 month process. If you're a first time bankrupt or a 24 or 36 month process, if you're a second time bankrupt. The differences in the time frame have to do with the individual's income. There is a threshold set by the superintendent of bankruptcy, and if that person's income is over, the bankruptcy is extended. Now, as long as they complete their duties in those required time periods, they obtain an automatic discharge at the end of that process. Now, Amanda, if the situation was where those people did not complete their duties, then that is where the court comes in for basically summary filing. I see, I see. So essentially, if you meet the initial criteria and you're able to go bankrupt or or file for bankruptcy, at that point, there's this like ceasefire for all your creditors. They can't come after you or take collections action because now there's a process in place over who's going to get paid what and how assets will be dealt with. And that's why it takes a period of time for this to be sorted out. And then some of the duties of the bankrupt person would include, you know, providing disclosure on income um, throughout this time period and also probably making sure that certain payments are allocated in, in certain ways to creditors. 
Correct. The the payment allocation, so there's secured debt and unsecured debt. If you if the individual has secured debt, they have to maintain those payments for as a mortgage, a car. If you don't make those payments, the creditors are going to take their assets, right? Take them back. Whereas if you have unsecured debt, that's where the payments will stop. So no further unsecured creditors can be paid. Okay. Okay. And so um, I recognize your role is called a licensed insolvency trustee. I know just in, in practice, we, we tend to refer to you as like a trustee in bankruptcy. So what is the role of the trustee in the bankruptcy process? So what we are is we are stepping in to facilitate the proper administration of the Bankruptcy Act and that the debtor has their certain rights um, given to them. So we're a mediator in the process. We don't represent the debtor and we don't represent the creditors. We just want to ensure that the legislation is followed throughout the process. As I mentioned, the debtor does have rights, as do the creditors. So we just facilitate that process. And so would, would you or the trustee in bankruptcy be the person that the debtor would report to throughout these periods of time? That is correct. So we, we're the ones that monitor the income. We ensure they're getting their counseling done. So they are reporting to us. And is it possible for, for example, for a corporation to go bankrupt or is this only available to individuals? It is definitely available to corporations as well. And that's where I mentioned that this consumer process, the summary bankruptcy, um, that's not a court process. Whereas if a corporation goes bankrupt or considers a proposal to their creditors, that is a court-driven process now. So the courts are involved from the start. Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. And then another phrase that you used earlier, and this is one that, that I've been familiar with in my practice, is called a proposal in bankruptcy. And I know I've had some clients that have taken that route before. Can you explain what a proposal in bankruptcy is? So it is um, either a consumer proposal or a proposal. The definition difference means a consumer proposal can be filed by a debtor that owes less than $250,000 of unsecured or of total debt, excluding their principal mortgage. If that debt is higher, now we're looking at a division one proposal. And that's where that court process comes in as well. There's a little more stricter voting um, requirements in that process. And that is the also the proposal that is availed to uh, corporate. So the difference between the consumer proposal and the division one proposal voting process is the consumer proposal must be voted in favor by the majority of the creditors, whereas the division one proposal must be voted in favor by two thirds in dollar value and majority in creditors. So a little stricter process there. So essentially you have to gather the creditors, let them know, here's the scoop, here's here's what we have. Will you accept so many cents on the dollar? Is that is that the idea? That's correct. And either they're going to come out and approve it or they're not going to vote in favor. But typically what happens is they're going to come back and say, no, but no, but we want this or no, but we want this. So then we have a period to negotiate with those creditors and the individual or corporation to determine if, if that's a reasonable solution. Okay. And so then if you're able to negotiate a reasonable solution in one of these proposals, then that is not a bankruptcy. And so therefore, um, if let's say 10 years later down the road, the person did have to go bankrupt, would that still be considered a first bankruptcy for them? 
That is correct. Yes, it would be. Okay. Yeah, they're two different. They're both legislated under the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act, but they're two very different processes. In a bankruptcy, as the trustee, we're really stepping into their shoes. We're monitoring income and expenses. We're potentially dealing with assets. If income changes, payment changes, if there's any amounts that they're entitled to during the process, the trustee has an interest in it for the benefit of the creditors. That is different in the proposal because the proposal, the debtor retains in the Mm -hmm. debtor stays in charge. There's no ongoing monitoring of income. They have one fixed payment. And as long as they pay that out within the payment period, their debts are discharged at the end of that process. And they have the ability to pay it out sooner and have it off their credit sooner. I was going to move to another question, but you just said something that made me think of something else that I want to quickly address. You've referenced the phrase discharge. And so I, I recognize that in certain cases, there can be an absolute discharge when, you know, everything is paid and, and we're good to go. And then there's certain times where there's a conditional discharge. What do these things mean for the bankrupt? So what it means is an absolute means at that point, you've done your duties, you've completed things, the bankruptcy is done, your debts are now discharged, and you can start fresh. Uh-huh. If it's a conditional order of discharge, this any of these orders also go through the court process, right? So that means if you weren't compliant or something came about that now we have to get additional money or you couldn't afford to pay your obligation within the bankruptcy, then we go to court and then that discharge is conditional upon payment of X amount or conditional upon attending your counseling sessions or providing the income information that you neglected to do. So those may be reasons for a conditional In addition, there is also a suspended discharge the court can order. And that would be if for some reason, say there wasn't much of an ability to pay anything additional back, but this is a, I don't know, a second or third time bankruptcy, for example, then the courts may say, no, we think you're a bit of a risk to the creditors. We're going to suspend this for a longer period. And then they would get discharged after that period. And um, alternatively, the court can outright refuse a discharge. Mm. So then Mm -hmm. if they refuse a discharge, are you just stuck in bankruptcy forever? Technically, for a period of time, yes. What we've seen local, like with our local court is that they've refused the discharge with the ability to come back before the courts within a, a time period, a few years or something, to maybe show the court what they've done differently to demonstrate that, yeah, they feel they should be discharged from this bankruptcy. Okay. And so I know a lot of people have familiarity with things like credit scores and, and, and that type of idea. I'm, I'm guessing that a bankruptcy... It's probably not great for one's credit score. What What is the interaction? Like, how long does that last? If you've been bankrupt and you have an absolute discharge, do you still have that, that sort of mark or seal sitting on your credit score for a period of time? Yes, you do. So basically, a bankruptcy is going to be on your credit, like showing there, for six years after your discharge. A consumer proposal will be on for the time you're in the proposal. Um, and time you're in the proposal plus three years after to a maximum of six years. So they both impact your credit. The proposal is just slightly above the bankruptcy, not significantly, unfortunately. But the nice thing in the proposal is 
if somebody's there, they can rebuild their credit while they're in it. Mm. Whereas in a bankruptcy, typically you're waiting till after it's completed. Okay. I did not know that. I did not know that the proposal was also showing up on your credit score. So there, I, I learned something today. <laughs> Good. And I mean, I know as the lawyer on a transaction, I mean, we will do bankruptcy searches with the Office of the Superintendent of Bankruptcy to see the history. And, and, and we can see if someone went bankrupt 25 years ago. So it, it sort of is that record that never does die um, that we can always kind of tell at some later date. Um, regardless of what province you're in, we can get access to that information as well. So I think that there's a bit of a misconception. I, I Sometimes I feel like people say, oh, I'll just go bankrupt. Um, that'll be easy. And, and I, I've always said, mm. you know, bankruptcy is not easy. Um, that is not a simple process. And some mm-hmm. of the things that you've pointed out today certainly certainly indicate that. How about if we if we flip gears into the discussion about, you know, tax-driven bankruptcies? Because that's often why I'm coming in contact with your team is we have a taxpayer who owes a significant amount of debt um, and just simply is not going to be in a position to ever get it paid. And that usually I find in that case, the majority of their debt is the tax debt, whether it be income tax, GST, payroll. There's different rules, as I understand it, when you're coming with a tax-driven or a tax-focused bankruptcy. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, And actually, we often hear people come to us, oh, I didn't know that we can include income tax debt in a bankruptcy. So there's that myth too, and it definitely can be included. Uh, CRA definitely does have privileges that are not afforded to other creditors. Mm -hmm. For example, they could, um, if you're not paying your taxes, they do not have to go through the courts like another creditor to get a judgment against you. If taxes are unpaid, they can certainly, what they do is they issue a requirement to pay, which gives them the ability to seize a bank account or garnish wages without that initial court process. So definitely when people are in that position, we want to look at look at their options sooner than later. Now you referred to high tax debt, and that is a, that is a phrase we use also, so <laughs> right there. And basically, in the legis- our legislation, if an individual owes more than $200,000 of income tax debt and it totals 75% or more of their total debt, they are no longer entitled to that automatic discharge I referred mm. to at the beginning. So now there will be a court, a court process. That must have been why I was thinking there was a court process, because I feel like every time I'm involved, there's always a court process. Must be because it's serious (laughs) enough that you've now had to hire me too. Things have gotten bad. Exactly. That's right. (laughs) And did the rules change on that? Was that always the case or was that something that's come about in the last decade or so? It did come about, yeah. In, and uh, it never used to be that way. So the act was streamlined a while ago, whereas before, when I referred to the nine and 21 months for first-time bankrupts with or without surplus or 24 or 36 for second-time bankrupts, there never used to be an automatic discharge process for second-time bankrupts, but now there is. And third-time bankrupts, there is no automatic discharge. So that is also a court hearing. They're not entitled to one. And then the high tax debt came into play as well. And is there a difference depending on the type of tax debt? Because I mean, I know when I'm working with collections officers, as soon as we've got trust funds, GST payroll, things get exciting. Um, and it's much harder to make deals or, or, or make arrangements for things. My understanding is that that might impact on a bankruptcy as well, whether you're able to do a consumer proposal. 
Absolutely. So if we're looking at, you know, depending if we're talking corporate or personal, so if with some of those, um, you know, source deductions and trust accounts, so say it is a corporation and the corporation's considering filing a proposal to their creditors, but they owe payroll or source deductions of a significant amount. Those source deductions are required to be paid off within six months of filing that proposal. Right there, that may make it difficult for some people. We often see that. So then if we kind of look at the next step, so how are those directors impacted with mm -hmm. that debt? So in the proposal, you've got your source deduction debt that has to be paid out right away. And if they can't, the source deductions as well as GST become a director liability and just an unsecured debt in any type of personal filing that might have to be made. In addition, if there's um, corporate income tax, that can also be assessed on an individual under a different section of the Income Tax Act. So that person could be responsible for all that corporate tax debt as well. If we take it a step, you know, to a sole proprietor, the same thing. If they've got payroll debt, then that amount, although it's not a Division I proposal dealing with the corporate, CRA still likes to take the position that we want to see that paid out within six months. They will negotiate on that, so that's something we can negotiate on, but it's still something they are considering. I, I've heard many times from CRA collections officers that they are not in the business of financing taxpayers. And right. that's usually the <laughs> phrase that I get as a response when I try to stretch it past six months. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> no, that's fair. So if somebody is is listening to this and, and they either have a client who's in a situation or maybe they personally are in a situation and they're wondering, oh boy, um, maybe some of this applies to me. Or are you able to explain just sort of practically speaking, like what steps would that person take? What does it cost them? Um, you know, what information do they need to gather? Just some of the practicalities on that piece. Mm -hmm, for sure. Definitely when individuals are finding themselves in financial trouble, whether it be income tax or any other debt and they're reaching out, nobody wants to reach out to us. It's, it's that one of those things and no one's happy yeah. to walk through our door, but the sooner you do reach out to a professional, the better it is and the more options that are available to you. The longer a person waits, it kind of limits some of those options we may have had earlier on. So my first recommendation is if you, if it even crosses your mind, it doesn't hurt to reach out to a licensed insolvency trustee because we are one of the only ones that are going to review all the options with, with the person, including maybe doing nothing if their situation mm -hmm. warrants it. What we're going to look at is we're going to look at their assets, values, um, any amounts owing on those. We're going to look at all their unsecured debt. We're going to look at household income and expenses. And then we're going to see what kind of options they may be. It may be tightening a budget. It may be making an informal settlement or informal arrangement with their own creditors without having to go through a trustee. But refinancing potentially, consolidation, what, what options are out there. And the sooner, like I said, I can't hammer enough, mm -hmm. the sooner they can, can reach out, the more options that we've got available. With regard to costs, mm -hmm. the initial consultation is always free. We're going to sit down and have that discussion with the person to see, to look at those options, and then they can determine what, if any, they want to proceed with. Well, and I know there's been many times that I've sent somebody over to your team thinking all is lost. And um, then I get an email back going, yeah, we're good. We figured out a plan. So I think I think sometimes it's it's hard to see the forest through the trees. And 
I've had people that just felt like, oh, I'm so behind in my filings. I have so much debt. I've got creditors knocking down my door. I don't know what Mm -hmm. to do. Um, The fact that you can go to somebody who does this for a living and also the fact that just by walking through the door or making the appointment or having the call, that does not mean you've gone bankrupt. Like you still have the choice. No one's going to make you do this. This is not mandatory, but this does exactly. at least give you options. And I find many times with my clients, at least, that the options are much better than what we thought they were going to be um, going into it. And and it can get moving very quickly um, to take that load of stress off of you. So uh, in terms of information that they would have to gather um, to sort of give you information on their assets and liabilities, what are you looking for in terms of documentation? Kind of what we're looking for is just verification of the asset to determine a value. So when an individual is looking at a bankruptcy or proposal, well, I'll step back here. So for example, if you have a house, either an appraisal or a property tax assessment, to look at that value. If you've got a vehicle registration, we can verify value. Whether debts, we're going to look at those um, statements that you've got, uh, prior tax returns or financial statements if you've got a corporation. Household income and expenses, we'll verify with pay stubs. So there's a number of different factors we're going to look at to come up with what makes sense. And I guess that first step is really just making that phone call or doing that initial reach out and saying, hey, here's here's my problem. Here's my pickle. And then from there, you guys can guide to indicate what documentation that you need. Absolutely. And also, I, you know, we've had situations where people are dealing with tax debt, the collectors, you know, really saying we're going to start garnishing, we're going to take this. Even to give us a call at that time, we have oftentimes been able to reach out to the collector and say, look, nothing's been done. We're having some discussions on coming up with a plan and they're willing to back off. So sometimes that helps. That is an excellent point because oftentimes people will phone me as the tax lawyer and they think I have some sort of special magical powers to stop a garnishing. And I mean, I can do that well. The client may have to go bankrupt, but I, I feel like the Siri hears that all the time. But when they actually get a licensed insolvency trustee phoning them and saying, hey, this person has taken serious steps. We're trying to come up with a plan of attack. There's something very serious about that. And and you can often at least at least buy some time, right? Until there's a plan, because that's often what we're trying to do. We're just trying to buy some time. I think that when I'm talking with clients and and trying to explain to them when something gets to the point that it's like very serious. Once a garnishee has been placed on your account and once your employer has been contacted and told to start forwarding funds and your creditors have been contacted, your suppliers have been contacted, that is very, very serious. That is like as serious as it gets. And there is no switch that we can flip to make that go away. Typically, it's, okay, we'll pay the amount owing, and then we'll remove the garnishes. But if we can get in there before the garnishes happen, there are way more options available. And so I echo your thoughts of the earlier we deal with this, the better. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And and also once, you know, once that garnishee is in place, the bankruptcy or proposal will stop that. But it's going to take us time. You know, it doesn't happen overnight, even though, even though those funds should be going back to the individual at that point, we may have to get them back. 
So it's just a process. Well, and there's the embarrassment associated with that too. I think that's often part of it, but it's like when we can control it and we can control the information and control where it's going, um, you can often keep this somewhat internal, but once the garnishes go out, now everybody and their dog starts knowing about what's happening with you, which can be very embarrassing for you and your business. It can actually impact your business as well um, because people start to think it's a sinking ship and that has issues as well. So um, another great reason to deal with this early is you can help to control the flow of information. You can get this under control, deal with the problem, and then move on with your life or your business. Absolutely. Well, Michelle, this was very helpful. I I really appreciate you popping on today and I will put all of the information in the show notes about you and how to reach you. Is there any sort of parting words that you would like to leave our listeners with today? I think we've talked, you know, a couple of times here, Amanda, and I think the important thing is If you're having any of those issues, thinking you're in financial trouble, even considering looking at options, reach out sooner than later, reach out to a professional, let's have a chat and see see how we can give you a hand or or send you off in the right direction. I think that's excellent advice. Well, thank you so much. I hope you have an awesome rest of the day. Thank you for your time today. And I know that we will be chatting again soon. Awesome. Thanks again for having me, Amanda. Enjoy your Thank day you as well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have an idea for a future episode or a burning question you would like to see discussed, please send me an email at thetaxchickpodcast at gmail.com. Also, if you enjoy this podcast, then please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts and click subscribe to be notified when new episodes are posted. Please note that the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast episode belong solely to the speakers and are not necessarily the views of the speaker's employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. In addition, the information provided and discussed in this podcast is not legal advice. We encourage you to consult with your legal advisor for specific advice.